landed an RC airplane. We'll share tips and tricks on how to build models and talk about successful flights, epic crashes, and everything in between. Visit us at rcplanelab.com to sign up for our email list and to ask us questions. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please help us out by rating and reviewing us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now here are your hosts, Ron and Tom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RC Plane Lab podcast. This is Ron. And I'm Tom. On today's episode, we're going to be kind of continuing from last week's with our Nitro episode theme, um, and we're going to be talking about rebuilding Nitro engines. Um, you know, these these engines last a long time, as long as you take care of them, and one of the steps to taking care of them is, is keeping them running right by rebuilding them from time to time when they need it. Um, yep. So I actually have never rebuilt an airplane engine. Uh, I have done them for nitro cars before, but never for a, a, a nitro uh, airplane engine. So you've been flying for a long time. So how many engines have you rebuilt? Conservatively speaking, 15. Oh. Let's say, yeah. So quite a few then. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not an expert, you know. I'm not Clarence Lee, uh, who is a legend in the... Uh, airplane engine market, if you will, or realm or arena. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've done my fair share and they, they all have run after I've rebuilt them. Uh, so I consider that a success. <laughs> yeah. So you brought him up in the, the last episode we talked about too. I'm not oh, familiar okay. with him. Who, who is that? So Clarence Lee um, is, uh, like I said, he's, he's, if you've been flying for a long time, uh, you you know the name at least, and he's uh, he's been affiliated with a lot of different um, model engine companies, I think, uh, but but primarily K and B, uh, which was a, a manufacturer that. Uh, uh, long story short, they they're they're not operating as they used to. They're operating under a uh, a big umbrella uh, company now called the Model Engine Corporation or Model Engine Company of America, MECOA for short. Uh, but anyway, Clarence Lee was involved with the, with KMB, and he was a tuner. He he produced um, custom engines. So you would order an engine from Clarence Lee, and it would usually be a KMB. And uh, depending on what you wanted, it was a sixty one or maybe it was a forty or whatever. But he would do things. He would he would uh, modify them uh, for you know max performance. He would he would fiddle with the porting by grinding on the on the sleeve, or he'd uh, He'd fill in ports in the crankcase and and re, uh, I don't want to say recast them, but uh, just basically, you know, tweaking these two-stroke model engines for maximum uh, performance, mostly for racing guys. But uh, his engines were very, you know, uh, ran very very well, and he also for a long time he uh, contributed to a lot of the paper. Uh, magazines that uh, you don't see around, you know, around much anymore, thanks to the internet and Google and uh, forums and things like that. But uh, he used to write a column in RCM, and uh, I mean, you could write into RCM with a with an engine question, and he would, you know, write an answer, and then you know, in the following issue, in the next month's issue, and and he always had the answer. I mean, the guy, uh, and, and he's still alive. Actually, he's still producing um, high end. K and B um, engines that you can order, uh, and he does it. He does things the old way. Uh, you can you can call him to order, and you can you can mail him a check and order that way. He doesn't <laughs> do anything online. Uh, but uh, but yeah, just 
yeah, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for the guy just because of his knowledge and skill uh, with these two-stroke nitro motors. So when are you talking like the, the heyday for, for all that would have been? Oh, certainly, certainly the 80s uh, and early 90s for sure. Um, okay. And I imagine with his, uh, with the, the, the level of skill and knowledge that he had, I, I imagine he probably started with, with engines uh, in the 50s and 60s, I bet, as a kid. And that's probably why I haven't heard of him then, because that's way before my time in the hobby. Yeah, just do a uh, just do a quick like Google search, you know, Clarence Lee model engine, and um, there, there'll be a lot of stuff out there uh, on him. Okay, I yeah. should remember to do that after this, so that's cool. Yeah, um, yeah. One of these days, I'm gonna get my hands on on one of his engines, and it'll be a it'll be a cherished uh, possession for sure. So if he still does it though, you can just order him. Like, I mean, right. what do you do? Tell him, tell him like the size you need, what you're putting it on, and and he goes from there, or or how does yeah, that all? Yeah, that's basically exactly. It. You call him up, and either either his wife, I think, answers, or he answers the phone. Um, you call him up, and you say, "Hey, I want to order an engine," and then he, he'll probably ask you a few questions, like, "Okay, well, what size? You know, what are you using it for? Is it is it a pylon racing engine? Is it a pattern plane engine? You know, what are you what are you going to do with this thing?" And then he will, you know tune it and tweak it accordingly and then in about a month or so he'll send it to you when he's done with it like he makes them to order <laughs> well why haven't you done it yet well from like i don't know for sure but I, I imagine they're they're probably fairly pricey fairly expensive worth every penny i'm sure um but uh so far i haven't uh, i haven't had a need for an engine that uh, that performs you know like that uh, I, i'm okay with my little sport airplanes that have just basic stock engines but one of these days one of these days yeah well it almost sounds like time might be uh might be running out so maybe you ought to just get one to have one on hand well i mean you know i don't, I don't mean to sound bad about it but no no you know if he was around no, the 50s and saying. 60s and this is something you're you're talking about that you'd like to you know cherish in a prized possession maybe it's time just to order yeah. it and and you, have you one might on be hand. right yeah yeah Maybe with this big economic uh, stimulus that the government's going to give us, maybe I'll uh, spend a little bit of that on one of these things. <laughs> there you go. See, plans already. There we go. Uh, anyway. Money's well, spent well, already. Don't even have it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easiest way to spend it. Yeah. Oh. Isn't it? All right. Well, let's let's get back. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't mean to get us off, right. off topic on that. Um, so, yeah, rebuilding nitro engines. Um, how do you know when it's time to rebuild? Yeah, there's there's a couple different ways to know. Um for me, uh, one of the one of the biggest telltale signs is a difficulty starting an engine that hasn't been difficult to start before, uh, and that's usually related to compression. Um, and you can feel that. You know, you can over time. It's hard to tell when an engine is losing compression because you know you're flying it, and if you hand start it like I do, you have a hands-on feel. You know, you know when the compression, you know what what it should feel like. Um, but basically, I mean, you should not be able to, to turn an engine over with a prop on it with one finger. You know, if you can take one finger and pull the propeller through the compression stroke and, 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 and past, um, chances are uh, it's time for a rebuild. But, but hard, difficulty starting and then loss of performance are the two factors that I, that I sort of look for. And so that's something that obviously depends on the engine, how long they last. But like usually— Absolutely. And so that's a, it's probably an unfair question, but how long, like, how long should you expect to get out of an engine between the time you buy well, it 
if you break it in properly, if you treat it right. well, you know, how long should you get like gallons of fuel wise before you normally have to rebuild them? Yeah, that's that's a good question, actually. Uh, it, it is hard to tell um, because, you know, so many variables uh, play into how long one of these little engines will last. Um, but I mean, if it's if you run them on the conservative side, which is what I do. Uh, you run them on the kind of the rich side, and you don't get them hot. And the the heat is is really the the biggest enemy, uh, because these things are you know are air cooled. They're not liquid cooled, so they're they're highly dependent on airflow over the fins to cool them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the installation you know plays a plays a big role. Like even if even a properly tuned engine can still run hot if there's not enough air flowing over it to cool it. So so like um, if it's inside of a cow that doesn't get the airflow, that's going to exactly. hurt its... Okay, so that'll hurt yep. its life. Exactly. Okay. So, um, and, and that was something I'd like to try to circle back to later about uh, about cooling and, and cowling and things like that. Uh, but anyway, it, 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 an engine that's, that's installed such that it gets plenty of airflow and you run it conservatively, I mean... Five gallons of fuel. I mean, I've got I've got an engine on this old contender over here. Uh, it's an old Super Tiger, so it's exposed. It's not a fully cowled in engine, and I run it conservatively. You know, I don't tune it for max performance. This engine is, jeez, oh, it's fifteen, sixteen years old, and I've never rebuilt it. It runs like it, like it did the day it was new, and I probably have two and a half to. F- I'm estimating here, but two and a half to four gallons of fuel through it. And it's showing no signs of needing a rebuild. So if you take yeah. care of them, they really, really will last a good long time. Well, and that's the thing, too, about them, really, is you're not using them, you know, every day. Um, exactly. So right. it, it's it's not something to where it's like a car where you drive it every day and, and you're worried about going through it. So really, yeah. to me, five yeah. gallons doesn't sound like a lot. But right. in the grand scheme of things, you know, when you go out to a field and fly it three or four times in a day— you're yeah. running what eight ounce tank, sixteen, thirty two ounces, ounces through it, maybe. Yeah. yeah yep. So you're not running much through it at all in that amount of time. So right. And I, you know, you don't get out there every weekend most of the time either, especially for us where we have the, uh, you know, the the cold weather that hits in and, and we can't always get out windy days and such. So yeah, right. I mean, I guess and, and most people don't just have one plane they fly either. So you know, right. going through them, that I guess those those five gallons get spread out over many years and you don't really even think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I would say that's probably on, on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is somebody who, you know, constantly flies for max performance. They fly at wide open throttle the whole time, and maybe their engine is cowled in and not getting the cooling it needs. You know, that engine may may not last a gallon of fuel. You know, may not last, a, you know, a flying season. So yeah. it's it's highly dependent on, on a lot of variables. Um, but like you know, like I said just a little bit ago, the the biggest factors to look for when it's time is you know difficulty starting. That's for me is like the first, you know, the first kind of aha, and then uh, loss of performance is is usually uh, a good indicator too. Like difficulty starting, the first thing you should always do though, am I correct? Is is check your uh, glow plug? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. If you if you've eliminated, you know. Most of the stuff that we covered uh, in the last episodes about starting, um, you know, you've got good glow heat and, you know, you've got a good prime and the engine still kind of refuses to fire off and it, and it just kind of feels weak or lazy on the compression, then, then it's time to start looking at, uh, you know, looking at 
you know, pull the head off, look at the cylinder, look at the piston, and you can usually tell by looking at them. So when it's, okay, when you've gone through all that and you know it's time to do it, like mm-hmm. roughly how long does it take to rebuild an engine? Not long. Uh, if you have all the parts and uh, and you have a good technique, um, it you can rebuild one of these little suckers in an hour. I mean, really. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That's less yeah, than it doesn't I was take thinking. Long. Yep. Doesn't take long at all. And then, like, when you go to to order the kit, then what's what's included in the the rebuild kit? For airplane engines, they're not they're not really sold as a rebuild kit uh, per se. Um, usually, you can buy a sleeve and liner together, uh, which is the uh, I'm sorry, the uh, piston and liner together as a match set, especially for ABC engines. Um, but on the airplane engine side, um, that they're usually sold just in the pieces. So. You order the parts you th- you need for your rebuild, and uh, that is your kit. Now, I know on uh, I think uh, on some of the car engines, uh, yeah, the, the nitro engines for cars. I think they may be sold like what you're talking about. Yeah. So the only experience I have rebuilding a, a nitro engine was a, a Traxxas 3.3, and that was, gosh, probably 10, 12 years ago. So I don't remember exactly how I did it, but it was it was a, a kit. It came with everything you needed and you didn't have to go and get separate parts. So I didn't realize right. the airplanes were a little bit different. Right. Yeah. And and you know, for for me, a rebuild is is basically um there, there, I guess there's different levels if you wanna if you wanna get into that. Um, you know, you can for for what the parts cost these days uh, to completely rebuild an engine, like all new parts, it's almost just cheaper to buy a new engine. Um, but it, but you can actually get get away. And the parts that wear are really the piston and the sleeve. Uh, usually the connecting rods are, are usually pretty durable. Uh, mm-hmm. They get a lot of lubrication from our from our fuel, even even when they're run a little bit on the lean side. Um, the uh, the wear really shows up on the piston more than anything. Uh, so usually what, what I do when it's time for a rebuild is I'll order the piston and sleeve uh, and then any necessary gaskets. Uh, usually there's a, a head gasket maybe uh, or a shim, if you will, and there's usually a back plate gasket. On some of the older engines, uh, like I'm looking at my old Irvine 40 here that I'm planning on putting on the Duelist project, um, it's it has a uh, what I call a two-piece crankcase. So the snout of the crankcase is actually a bolt-on affair, and it also requires a gasket. Uh, so that's what I do. I order a piston and sleeve uh, or a ring for the piston if uh, if it's a ringed engine. Which that's semi-uncommon, right? It's it's not as common as it used to be, uh, but you can still actually buy uh, ringed engines out there. I think the I think the OS fifty-five AX. I I might be mistaken, but there are still there are still ringed engines out there, and actually a ringed engine makes the rebuild a lot um, cheaper if you just stick to replacing the ring for the piston and and the liner if the liner is showing wear. Usually on a ringed engine, um, a fresh ring will restore the compression. Usually, uh, not always, but um, so that's what I do. I start with a piston and a sleeve. Uh, or a ring, if it's a ringed engine, and then a set of bearings. And that's usually, and any gaskets, and that's usually all I uh, replace. Uh, Because if you start buying connecting rods or or crankshafts, usually you don't need to replace those because they're usually in pretty good shape. After you rebuild it, is Mm -hmm. is that pretty much like a new engine then? Can you expect the same duration out of that rebuild that you can from a new engine, or do you get less life out of it? 
Nope. You can you can absolutely get the you can expect to get the same amount of life because they're factory original parts. And in the case of ABC engines, um, you really have to buy the piston and sleeve as a match set because that's how they're manufactured. And yeah, I mean, when you put those in there, it's it's just, it's a new engine. I mean, you you have to go through the break-in process just like it was a new engine. They're factory parts, so they're made to the same specs as the engines that roll, you know, out of the factory. So yeah, for, for you can you could reasonably expect to get the same amount of life after you know after a rebuild. Yep. Walk us through the process then. What uh, what are the steps to doing it? Well, you disassemble it and put it back together. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no, easy I, then. So, right, right. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a technique that uh, that I've used that I you know learned a long time ago from reading or, or what have you. Uh, but uh, yeah, basically you, you I mean you you do you take take the engine apart um, and you clean it as best you can. Uh, there's lots of there's lots of ways to do that. Um, I'm not going to get into cleaning an engine because we could talk hours about you know different methods of getting them clean. But whatever method you choose. Try to get all the gunk and stuff, especially off of the fins on the outside of the engine, because we talked about that, right? The mm-hmm. fins are what cools the engine. If they can't do their job, then you got a hot running engine, and it requires a rebuild more often. And then we're talking about this again. Uh, so disassemble the engine, clean it, and then uh, there's some little tricks that you, you you know when you disassemble the engine that you'll need to know um, to completely disassemble engine, and specifically to get the piston and the sleeve out. Usually, there's some little um, process that you have to follow in order to get those pieces out of there. And usually what that consists of is you have to obviously pull the head off, pull the back plate off, and then somehow you have to get the sleeve out of the cylinder with the piston still in the cylinder because you can't slide the piston off of the, the crank pin because it's connected to the connecting rod, right, with the sleeve still in there. There's not enough play. So that's the real trick, is getting that sleeve out of the engine with the piston in there. And a little trick I learned a long, long time ago is in our flight boxes, we keep usually uh, old uh, glow plug washers, those little copper washers that crush when you, you know, you put the mm-hmm. glow plug on. Mm-hmm. I usually I usually hang on to the old ones. I don't know why, it was just a bad habit, but it's a good thing I do because what I do is I'll, once you have the head off the engine and the back plate, uh, I move the piston to bottom dead center, and I take a couple of those copper washers and I'll throw them down there on top of the piston. And if you look down into the top of the engine, down at the piston, you'll see the exhaust port and the intake ports and all these little ports that are uh, cut into the sleeve. So I, what I'll do is I'll take that copper washer. You know, so hold on, sorry, up. I don't I don't mean to interrupt you, but well, okay. So when you pull the head off. The, the head is separate from where the sleeve and piston is, so the sleeve and piston stay on the engine and the head comes off? Right. Yeah. The okay. head, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a jug like, uh, like an old Volkswagen engine, if you're familiar, or, or real airplane engines. On the four strokes, they're that way, but we're not, I'm not talking about four strokes. Okay. Um, on, on these two strokes, yeah, there's, the head is just what it says. It's just the cap, basically, to the cylinder of the, of the engine. Uh, so the jug itself doesn't come off. So yeah, we're looking down at the top, you know, down through the through where the head would be, down at the top of the piston, and I've got my couple of brass washers in there. And what I'll do is I'll move that piston up just a little bit, and I'll move those brass washers such that they're partially in either the exhaust port or one of those intake ports or, or whatever, and then I can use that piston 
kind of as leverage against that washer to put pressure on the sleeve to push it out of the crank uh, crankcase. Because and it then, doesn't matter because the the ports you're you're talking about that you can mess up are going to be replaced with a new sleeve, right? That's all built in. Right. Right. Okay. And even even if you were you know even if you were rebuilding a ringed engine. Um, you could use the same process because that copper washer will crush and not deform any steel or aluminum parts because it's softer than those. Okay. Yeah. So, and then I, I also use a little bit of heat. Uh, so I'll, I'll grab my, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll grab my, uh, my covering, uh, not my iron, but my, uh, heat gun that I use for covering mm-hmm. and I'll, uh, I'll heat that, that, uh, cylinder up and, you know, you want to wear gloves uh, but usually a little bit of heat and those copper washers to apply the pressure will usually allow you to kind of push that sleeve out to the point where you can grab it with your glove and then pull it the rest of the way out. That's that's a little trick I learned a long time ago. Uh, yeah, I kind of seem to remember there was a an oven involved when I did the, the RC car engine a long time ago. But, but I didn't know if that was right or not, so I didn't want to say anything until you said something about heat because no, I didn't no, want to sound no. weird. <laughs> the oven, the oven, uh, the oven method is what I use, uh, and I'll talk about this in a little bit is to get the bearings out of the crankcase. Okay, so another little trick, and maybe that's what I used it for. I don't, I don't remember. It's it been be. a long time. Yeah, yeah. So once you've got the sleeve out, then you know you can you can reach in there uh, and uh, pull the connecting rod off the crank pin. Uh, which will usually have the piston attached to it and pop that out of the engine. And if that's all you're replacing, um, you don't have to take it apart any further. Uh, myself, I usually do bearings as well. Uh, and the reason I do that is because um, I do have a bad habit occasionally of forgetting to put after run oil. And over years, uh, you know, after I'm done running, and over years, uh, b- bearings do get gritty. Uh, and usually by the time uh, one of my engines needs a rebuild, the bearings are are due for replacement as well. So to get those out, uh, that's where the oven trick comes in. Um, obviously, you're going to pull the prop nut and the washer off, and then you have to get that prop drive washer off too. And there's lots of different ways that those are attached to the engine. Uh, some of them use a um, what I call a woodruff key. Uh, so that's like, you know, if you've ever taken apart like a Briggs & Stratton engine, there's that kind of half-moon-shaped key that fits in a recess in the crankshaft, and then the flywheel uh, mm-hmm. f- fits over that. Same idea. Uh, or there's a tapered collet, uh, which when you slide the, the drive washer on, it fits over that tapered collet, and then first time you crank the prop down on it, it sets that uh, drive washer in place uh, semi-permanently, I'll add, because <laughs> they're hard to get off, especially if... Uh, if it's an engine that's been through a lot of heat cycles. Uh, so to get that drive, uh, the prop drive hub or drive washer or whatever you want to call it off, um, I use a cool little tool that I modified just slightly so I'm not... You could use a screwdriver, and I've seen people use screwdrivers and heat, uh, but usually that ends up in leaving gouges on your crankcase. Uh, I, I like my stuff to look nice, so I don't, I don't want those gouges on my crankcase. So what I did is I went to AutoZone. It's been a years ago. I'm sure they still sell them. Uh, and I bought a tool. It's called a a battery terminal puller. And it's actually oh. a little two. Yeah, it's yeah. actually a little two jaw puller uh, that's very small because it's only designed for battery terminals. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like a flywheel puller or anything like that. 
Uh, I did modify the jaws slightly. I ground them kind of to a point so that I could get behind that drive washer with those jaws and use that to pull the washer off. And it works great. I mean, I've, I've used it for years and years. Uh, in fact, I don't even try to pull them off by hand anymore. I just grab that tool, uh, put it on there, and they, you know, pops them right off. Uh, so once you've got the drive washer off or the, the drive hub, it's called a lot of different things. I call it a drive washer. Then you, you know, basically either um, get the crankshaft out and heat always helps here because those crankshafts are usually, I don't want to say they're press fit because they're not, but over time with the heat and cold and heat and cold and the, and the oil that's in our fuel getting baked on there, those crankshafts are usually stuck on the inner races of the bearings. So sometimes they need a little help and heat is the, is the help. Uh, and what I do is I just basically, I take the engine, uh, set it on its, on the back plate or where the back plate would be. And then I take a piece of wood on the, uh, on the end of the crankshaft and then give it a good smack with a, you know, with a handle of a screwdriver or something. Usually that's enough to, to pop them out of there if you can't get them out any other way. Um, and then at that point, you, you've pretty much got a bare crankcase. You know, you've got the sleeve and the piston, the connecting rod, those are all out. Uh, you've got the head obviously off and the back plate off. Uh, hopefully by now you've, you've taken the carburetor off because you don't want to you know, break it in the, in the course of, you know, manhandling this thing to try to get the pieces off. Um, and now you have the crankshaft out. Uh, so now you've got this basically bare, uh, engine block with the bearings still in it. Uh, and the trick I use to get the bearings off is I said, don't tell my wife this, but I set the oven to 250 <laughs> degrees. I take a, an old pan, set the engine in this pan, put it in that oven for about 10 to 15 minutes let it get good and warm. And then with a pair of gloves, that's very important. Don't grab it with your bare hands, <laughs> please. Uh, uh, grab that, you know, take that engine out of there. And then this sounds really, really barbaric. But what I do is I've got this big wooden, um, it's it's like a two by four, uh, two by six uh, plank kind of a thing. Um, but it's not pine. It's harder than that. It's a maple. It doesn't matter. As long as you got some wooden block that's softer than the engine, uh, you basically just, now that the engine's hot, you take it, you grab it, and you basically smack it on this wooden thing as flat as you can on the back plate where the, where the back plate mounts. And usually that is enough to knock the bearing out of the back. Um, it may take a couple tries uh, until you develop your technique or whatever, but I've gotten to where I can usually get them on the first try without having to reheat them. Um, so that'll get the rear bearing out. The front bearing is a little trickier. Uh, and a little trick that I use is same thing, you know, heat from the oven or a heat gun if you want to, you know, use that. Uh, and what I do is I'll take the crankshaft and instead of, you know, putting it in the engine from the back, I'll turn around and put it in from the front. Uh, and usually the friction of that crankshaft and I can usually wiggle it when it's hot and pull that front bearing out. And then that's it. The, the assembly is the exact opposite of that. You, you know, you start with the bearings, um, put those in. A little trick that helps me is I'll, I'll put the new bearings in the freezer, like before I get started. So when I'm ready for them, they'll be nice and cold and just slightly smaller than the bores that they're going into. And usually I can pull them out of the freezer and they'll slide right in the crankshaft. And as they warm up, they get that nice tight fit. Um, and then, yeah, put, put it back together just exactly the way it uh, came apart. 
And then after it's done, make sure you break it in like it's a new engine. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The bearings are fine. You know, everything, all the pieces are fine. The only thing we're doing is we're trying to wear in that new piston and sleeve fit. So you get that good, nice uh, seal and uh, you get a good long life. Yeah. Break it in yeah. just like it was a new engine. Yep. Yep. That way you're not doing this again in a couple months. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hope I didn't confuse anybody, but once you get it done, you get a develop or a technique developed, it, it goes pretty quick. Like I said, I can, you know, if if I don't run into any uh, weird issues, um, like, a you know, a seized bearing that's welded itself to the crankshaft, which I, I've had that before, um, as long as you don't run into anything like that, an hour, easy. So two-stroke versus four-stroke on those then. Um, okay. Like, which one lasts longer, or is there a difference? Like, when I say lasts so, longer, I mean, like, if you're taking care of it the same way and, you know, all things right. equal, do you get a longer, you know, more fuel run through a two-stroke or a four-stroke? So I'll have to be honest. Um, of all the four-strokes I've ever owned, I have not had to rebuild any of them ever. Um, oh. I don't know. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's because they're just that much more durable. It, it could also be that I just haven't used them as much as I've used the two-strokes over the years. Um, I have rebuilt a few. Um, not because they were worn out. Oh, well, maybe not because they were worn out, but they were used engines that I purchased and they felt low on compression. So, you know, I would go ahead and do a rebuild uh, just to just to know that I'm starting off with something, you know, good. Um, or, but you've never you know, had one you bought brand new that you had to rebuild? Not not once. Yep. Yeah. Huh. So, like I said, take, you know, take that with a grain of salt. It, it could be because I don't, I don't, run as much fuel through them because they're, you know, I don't have as many of them. So, yeah. uh, you know, take that for, you know, what it's worth. Um, but I have not had to rebuild a four stroke because it was worn out, at least not one that I wore out. The difference between rebuilding them then, what's, is there any more, um, I mean, obviously there's going to be more that goes into to doing a four stroke because it's, it's a, a little more, uh, involved engine, um, right. But is it much more difficult to do? I, I wouldn't really say the difficulty is any greater than a two-stroke. It's just that there's more pieces, and it's it's very important to put those pieces back where they go and to not have extra pieces when you're done. <laughs> um, but but no, the, the, the process really isn't any more difficult. Now, having said that, I would say that um, if you've never rebuilt even just a two-stroke, uh, before you tackle a four-stroke, maybe, maybe uh, you know, go ahead and do it, but maybe have some, I don't want to say supervision, but maybe have somebody around who's done it before um, because it is very easy to uh, lose parts that are under spring pressure, especially when we're talking about the valve train. And also there's a, there's a key element when, when you're dealing with four-stroke is that, is that valve timing. Uh, so these four strokes use a camshaft to actuate the valves, which is driven off the crankshaft. And that the timing of those two, how they're geared together, is extremely important. You get that wrong, um, I mean, obviously the engine's not going to run right. But also, if you get it really wrong, you know, you can you can smack the piston with a valve, and and that's not good. We don't we don't want anybody doing that. So um, if you're going to try to tackle one yourself, it, it's fine. You can do it, but uh, just be very, very careful with that with that camshaft crankshaft um, interface because uh, you know take pictures with your phone as you're taking it apart or just or make a mental note. 
Uh, some people, you know, they, they scratch, you know, little lines on, on, I don't recommend doing that. I'm not a big fan of scratching on engine parts, but uh, just do whatever you can to make sure you get that, that interface exactly right when you put it back together. Um, otherwise, I mean, it's, it's just a mechanical little thing. And if you take it apart and you put it back together the way it came apart, it should run just fine. So it doesn't sound like there's too much to them, like in general. Obviously, the four strokes are a little bit more difficult, but it doesn't sound like there's too much to these engines. Um, you know, and it's it's a, a good thing that if you need to, just kind of try and tackle it yourself if you're comfortable. You right. know, if you feel like you right. can do it, don't be afraid of it. Just give it a shot and yeah. see what uh, what comes of it. Yeah, if you have even just average mechanical ability, you can you can definitely rebuild one of these. And we say rebuild because we're just taking old parts out and putting new parts in. You know, if we were actually going to had to do, you know, some machining and, and lapping of the valves and, you know, which we, you can do, um, then then we're talking about, you know, remanufacturing and that's that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds more uh, in-depth when you say rebuilding when when really it's not all that big of a deal. Yeah, we're just we're just replacing parts. Yeah. Yeah. Internal so. parts, but still they're and, just well, right. parts. Right, and they're important parts. I mean, they, you know, they <laughs> they're they're kind of important to the operation of uh, of the engine and and the power plant of our airplanes, but uh, they're they're not rocket science. It's not it's not uh, it's not terribly difficult to do if you if you just take your time and pay attention to what you're doing. A little bit earlier, you said you wanted to circle back to uh, cooling and cowling. Oh, right, right. So, uh, sort of plays into the maintenance. Um, you know, when, when, you're, when you're building your airplane or if you get a used airplane, um, especially an airplane that has a cowled-in engine, um, the rule of thumb is double the exit. So what that means is, uh, let's say we're talking about a, an edge airplane uh, that has, you know, like a like the full-size airplane it has the two open holes, one on either side of the spinner, right? Like as if it had a Lycoming engine in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's your inlet, right? That's the air that is allowed to go into the cowl to cool the engine, assuming that the engine isn't hanging out the side of the cowl. Um, so you want if you to to get to get real airflow, and so you're not choking up the air in there. You really need the exit uh, to be roughly twice, if you can, as large as the intake. And usually we do that by you know kind of trying to cut a a hole, if you will, or some sort of uh, maybe vents or something in the cowl such that the surface area of those is roughly double the surface area or lack of surface area, if you want to use that term, of the intake. Uh, that's how you get proper cooling. You have to have more exhaust than intake. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's good to know. And that, that does make sense, though, because you want to make sure that any air that gets in there can easily escape so it can be replaced with new cool right. air. Right. Uh, there, there, there are some folks out there that will, will argue that, and they say, well, you want to make sure the air hangs around inside the cowl long enough for that transfer of heat energy to happen. Well, yeah, got it. But um, over, you know, over the years that I've been doing this, I've had way better um, results with, with a lot of exit air as opposed to choking that off and you know, going for scale looks. Now I do. I, I will admit that I do have airplanes that are um, that I'm cheating, you know. But I don't fly those airplanes very often, and I fly them very, very rich. So <laughs> I try to make up for it with extra fuel and oil. Yeah, and worst case scenario is you just have to replace the the bearings and stuff sooner, or the the piston and sleeve. 
Right, which gives me, you know, gives me a reason to, to you know, tinker with my airplanes. And that's never <laughs> a bad thing. Nope. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's basically, you know, that's basically how how I go about uh, rebuilding one, uh, a two stroke and a, a four stroke. I'll just, you know, it's not a lot different. I mean, the the bearings in the crankshaft they're they're sort of pressed in just like a two stroke. Um, you know, there's all these extra little bits on the top of the cylinder, but uh, on in the case of four strokes. Uh, well, at least with Sato's, uh, the nice thing about those is you can, you know, four screws and the whole jug comes off, which is, you know, pretty, pretty slick if you don't want to take the valves and stuff apart um, or the valve train, excuse me. Um, the OS's are a little bit better. Like usually the head comes off with the valve. Well, the head does come off with all the valves and stuff attached to it, but it's not the whole cylinder. So you still have to go through that whole process of, you know, pulling the sleeve out and stuff like that. Whereas the Sato... It, the jug comes off, and there you go. Your piston's right there. So uh, I will say Sato does make things a little bit easier on the maintenance side. But as far as as far as far rebuilding them, the process is very similar, just making sure you get those pieces back in the right order and in the right position. <laughs> well, and I guess the four strokes, I guess we do tend to, we do have a little bit more uh, concern with the valve lash, stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, on a, on a rebuild on a four-stroke, I've never actually had to replace valve components, um, but I suppose if you did, uh, you would have to go through that, um, you know, adjusting the valve lash as you would periodically on on a four-stroke that's in service. And you do that according to however the instructions that came with the engine direct you or whatever you find online. But usually uh, when an engine is cold, you want, you know, two to five thousandths, I think it is. Last time I read my Sato instructions, um, but yeah, that's that's really the only other hiccup uh, that you that you might encounter with a four-stroke over a two-stroke. So, is there anything else you uh, you want to cover, or uh, you think we got it all, or should I say, do you think you got it all? Because I didn't do much talking. <laughs> well, I mean, well, you talked about your your experience with uh, with that old Traxxas engine, um, and that doesn't that doesn't count for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-stroke engine. Well, I guess uh, that's true. Sure, but I mean, it, you could put that in an airplane. I, Put a small prop on it, though. Uh, no, I think I think that pretty much covers it. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here looking at this Irvine that I'm getting ready to uh, put back together. Um, I don't think I've missed anything. If I have, hopefully somebody will will call me out. You said that you could put like a uh, the Traxxas engine in an airplane. What is the difference <laughs> between now? Like, what is the difference between an RC airplane engine and like a, an RC car engine? I mean, I know they're they're close, and one has a starter, you know, that you don't have obviously, like <laughs> right, on, a, right. on an airplane. But what what's the difference? Car engines are are designed to run in an entirely different environment. Um, they're designed for high RPM, so the porting is different. Uh, they're designed to run. Um, without the assistance of a lot of air moving over them. So they generally speaking have larger um, heads and, and more pronounced, you know, fins and things like that on the crankcase and uh, so on. And usually the carburation is quite a bit different too. On some of the larger car engines, uh, you know, when we get into the into the 21s and 25s and, and larger, um, you know, they incorporate things like uh, slide valve carburetors, which are more responsive, which is what you want if you're racing. Um, so yeah, to put a, to put a car engine in an airplane, it, it can be done. Uh, but you have to, I mean, you have to realize that they're designed to be run at, you know, 18, 20,000 RPM as opposed to 10 to 12, you know, so you have to prop it accordingly. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I was just curious that I, yeah. I wasn't sure what the difference was. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're just designed to to run in a different environment, but they run on the same principle. Just one more thing. Um, I I mentioned the ringed engines, uh, and I meant to have one here to to remind me. But a ringed engine, you really you know, if if you're replacing a ring on a piston, number one, those rings are are made out of a a fairly high tensile strength steel, and usually they're they're hardened and and chromoly usually, um, but they're designed to not be very very flexible. So you have to be really careful when you when you're stretching a new ring over a piston, uh, don't go too far. And then also when you're sliding the sleeve back over that uh, piston, you have to make sure very very careful that you're compressing that ring somehow uh, before the sleeve slides over now most sleeves are tapered at the bottom uh, on the insert side uh, which means as you're sliding the sleeve down over the piston it usually has a built-in sort of taper to help with that you know compressing this the ring as it goes into the cylinder um, but that's just one thing you got to be careful otherwise you know you're going to be breaking that ring trying to jam it in the in the liner and that's not good either See, when I rebuilt, I, I rebuilt an old uh, Ford motor for a, a Mustang. And mm-hmm. on, on that one, when I did it, I had, uh, well, first off, a ring compression tool when you were putting it right. back in. Yep. Um, and then I also had like the, the ring uh, expansion pliers, I guess is what you call it, that actually yep. expanded the rings out. Do they make the same thing then for, for these engines or do you just kind of have to do it without that? For car engines, I've seen, I've, I think I've seen the... Uh, the ring compress compressor sleeve tool thing, uh, like for, for RC car, car engines. engines. Yeah, but RC okay. car engines for the most part don't use rings anymore, so we don't really have to worry about that anymore. But I don't. I've never seen those types of tools for model airplane engines. Uh, okay. I just I'm just really really careful about you know when I'm sliding, and I use lots of lubrication when I'm putting an engine back together. Um, after run oil is what I use. I just wasn't sure if there was tools. You know, specialty yeah. tools or anything that would make it easier. So yeah, there there would be. I mean, if if they made a, a micro version of a of a ring expander and and a compressor, that'd be awesome. But I can imagine the market for something like that would be really really small. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> may may not be cost effective to produce something like that. As long as you're careful, you can do it. Yeah, and I guess that's the other thing too. Like with all these smaller engines, if you do have rings on them, you know the sizes are going to vary so much. Oh, yeah. um, that it would yeah. be hard to try and make one that would cover, you know, from a, a, a tiny 40 size all the way up to like a 50 cc and, and upward. So, right. Yeah. And generally speaking, the bigger they are, the easier they are to, to work on and, and replace parts, generally speaking. All right. Well, good deal then. Uh, do you have anything else you want to cover? Uh, no, no, that, uh, that pretty much, uh, pretty much does it. Yeah. I, I, I think we've covered everything. So, uh, uh, until next time, I'm Ron. And I'm Tom. We'll see you later. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the RC Plane Lab podcast. For topic suggestions, to ask questions, or to give any feedback, connect with us at rcplanelab.com or email us direct at either ron at rcplanelab.com or tom at rcplanelab.com. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, may your landings be gentle.